let's talk happiness. Let's talk happiness. The Pursuit of Happiness is a series. We're going to be in the entire month of January. It's based upon the unlikeliest of books. Uh, I'll kind of explain where this thing came from and, and how it was inspired. Back probably three or four years ago, I got an Audible subscription. I kind of broke down and finally got an Audible subscription. And it, if you got one, what it is, it's like 14, 15 bucks a month. And it's one credit per month. And it's audiobooks. And so you can download them and listen to them through your phone. And um, I try to listen to one audiobook <clears throat> per month. That's kind of my goal. And then I try to read an additional three books on top of that. So my resolution, one of my resolutions since 2012 has been to read 50 books a year. And I don't know if audiobooks counts towards that. I count towards that. Some of you are like, no, you're reading 38 books per year. So if you're, you know, like a reading legalist, then that's okay. You know, I'm reading 38 to 50 books a year. But I try to include the audible in the mix. But here's the deal with audible. You've got to be real careful what you choose because there's a difference between reading a book and listening to a book. So I try to listen to books that I'm not that interested in. <laughs> and that may sound I mean, like the one and done books because when you listen to a book, you're usually doing something else. So for me, I'm running or I'm driving or I'm cleaning the house or something. Like I'm usually doing something else while I listen to books. I'm not totally engaged in it. So it can't be something that requires a lot of thought because I'm distracted already, then I can't go back and like reread stuff. Because once you listen to it, like you can't underline stuff and highlight stuff and kind of go back. And so I try to choose those books, like I call them one and done books. Like, oh, that'd be a good one to listen to because I'm just going to listen to that and I'll be done with it. And I don't want to like have it on my shelf and go back and reference this. I'm not going to preach a series on that book, that kind of stuff. But occasionally I mess up and end up buying a book on Audible, listening to it, and then buying the actual book and reading it a second time. And that happened twice within the last two months. And I'm going to use both of those books to base series upon them this year. One of them is what you would expect. One of them is this book right here. It was Irresistible by Andy Stanley, reclaiming the new that Jesus unleashed for the world. And we're going to do that on Easter. And I'm like, that's, yeah, that's, it's a Christian book written by a Christian author about Christian themes. That one makes perfect sense. It's the, I've based other series on Andy Stanley's books. That's the, exactly the kind of book you would expect me to base a series on. The second book is this one right here. It's called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind by Yuval Noah Harari. Um, it's not a Christian book. He's not a Christian, and he doesn't write about Christian themes other than to dismiss them as fiction. So Harari, his, his basic take on all religion, not just Christianity, but all religion is, it's myth or uh, social construct. It's basically just some made-up stories that a lot of people believe. Now, in the defense of religion, he also feels that way about money and empire. And so he feels that way about a lot of things. But this is, is not a book that I'm guessing a lot of pastors are using to create series around them. And I'm telling you that because a lot of people like to read along with me. So I've already had folks texting me going, hey, the series Pursuit of Happiness, what book are you using for that? Because I wanted to get a copy of that and kind of follow along with you. If you get this copy and follow along with me, you're probably going to be surprised 
Now, it's a fascinating read, and it's, and it's a great book. It really is a great book, but you're gonna, what happens, I'm afraid people are going to get it and read it and go, I can't believe Russ agrees with this. Wow, this is, I, I can't believe that this is where his thinking is. Well, it's not where my thinking is. It's where this guy's thinking is. I don't only read stuff that agrees with me. I read stuff that I find interesting and insightful, stuff that, that kind of challenges me to think critically about issues, that challenges me to learn, uh, think differently about things. And Harari will challenge you to think differently about things. But you don't have to read the book in order to engage in the series because the series is only based on about two pages in the second to last chapter of the book. Something he said that I heard while I was running and thought, oh, wow, that." Yeah, let's talk about that. I'll explain it. You see that the, the subtitle, there's a brief history of humankind. So what he tries to do is he tries to go back to the very beginning of history and present a comprehensive history. So by brief, he means 400 plus pages of history. By history, he means since the beginning of time. And he and I don't see the beginning of time eye to eye. But he, for me, I'd say all the way back to Adam and Eve. He says all the way back 14 billion years ago. So he goes back to the beginning of time, and he traces human history through kind of four major time periods. The cognitive revolution, the agricultural revolution, the unification of humankind through money and empire and religion, and then the scientific revolution. And he goes through all of this human history, these years and years, centuries of human history, and he gets to the second to last chapter, and he asks a question. And it's not a particularly profound question, and it's one that I think we know the answer to, but when you look at it in the context of all of human history, you think about these millions or thousands of years of history, depending on your view, you, know, you think about all of these years and years and years and years of history and human progress, and Yuvari asked, Harari asked this question right here. Are we happier? Like all of this stuff that's happened and all of these ways that society has evolved and grown and changed and progressed, are we happier? And he breaks it down and it just, I want to think about it. Think about our wealth. Think about the expansion of wealth in the last three centuries. The book I'm listening to right now is about Cornelius Vanderbilt. And, you know, so, I mean, you just think about how the wealth from like the 1600s to the 2000s, just think about how much our wealth has increased as a society and personally and individually. We live in a time of incredible riches. The stuff of fairy tales three or 400 years ago. I mean, we've, got, we've all got roofs over our head. We've got massive roofs over our head. And all of our kids, most of the time, have their own room, their own little individualized space. And our homes are air-conditioned, and they're heated, and we've got hot water, and we've got plumbing. We've got stuff that, that just a generation or two ago were considered luxuries. Those are not luxuries anymore. Those are necessities. If your air goes out, that is an emergency. That is a necessity. How do, you know, our grandparents wouldn't even have thought about that. If your air went out, well, come on, that air is a luxury to have. But that's, I mean, we've got all of those things in our home. We've got uh, pantries full of food. I mean, when we say, you know, we don't have any food in the house, what we mean is we can't eat for the next month. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, we're going to need some. We could eat for months without even buying something from the grocery store. We've got pantries full of food. We've got fridges full of food. We don't worry about where our next meal is going to come from. We've got easy access to transportation. My kids all got their own car. 
and it's not just a car that gets you point A to point B. The seats are heated. The steering wheel's heated in my daughter's car, not in mine, but my daughter's got heated steering wheel still. You know, but, I mean, just think about that. The, the wealth there, all this wealth, our health, we live longer than ever before. In human history, we're living longer. We've got easy access to health care for the most part. We've got, um, you know, diseases that were once considered a deadly diagnosis are nothing anymore. There's diseases that have been wiped off the planet. Smallpox we don't worry about anymore. Polio we don't worry about in the United States anymore. I mean, it's just, the, 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 when you think about modern health care, a friend of mine had a heart attack a couple weeks ago. In 15 minutes, they had inserted a little mesh tube into his artery that opened up his artery, and they went through his leg and used cameras to get it up. To that's incredible. I mean, that's just mind-boggling to think about the access that we have to healthcare. It's like It's like the stuff of science fiction. And then technology in our phones, we're carrying around supercomputers in our pockets, way stronger than any computer, you know, 50 years ago. And we can access any piece of information we want there. We can contact anybody we want. We can get directions to anywhere we want. We can buy anything we want through that. And so you think about all of this wealth and all of this health, the way it's improved, all of this technology, the modern conveniences, the comforts, all the years of human progress, just in the last 500 years, all the years of human progress. And he asked the question is, are we happier? Has our increased wealth and abundance resulted in more contentment? Are people living in the year 2020 just way more content than people who lived in 1950 or 1850? Because we just have so much more wealth. How could we not be so much more content? Or, or, or all is, does our access to health care make us more joyful? I mean, we've got, we can just, there's so much, we've got it so much better than anybody else in the history of the world. Does that make us more joyful? Our access to technology, the fact that we are so interconnected and every one of us can call somebody else, just get a hold of somebody easily, does that, is that, has all our technology and social media led to more bliss in our lives? Are we happier? And I think the answer for a lot of folks is No. I mean, subjectively speaking, no, we're not much happier than people were a generation ago or two generations ago or even thousands of generations ago. We're not any happier living in our 3,000-square-foot houses that are air-conditioned with unlimited amounts of food resources than peasants living in mud huts wondering about where their next meal is going to come from. Objectively speaking, they've done studies the last decade or so that says we're not even happier than we were 10 years ago. You think about the advent of social media and technology and smartphones and all that stuff, I think 2007, 2008, somewhere where that came about. And since that's come about, there's increased levels of anxiety, increased levels of depression, increased levels of loneliness. It's not making us more happy. It's making us more depressed. And you say, well, what, what gives... You know, how, why is this happening? Why is it that as we progress as a society, as we gain more wealth, as we gain more health, as we gain more technology, all these things that we assume are going to make us happy because that's what our resolutions are about, right? I mean, our New Year's resolutions, I'm going to eat better, I'm going to exercise, and I'm going to make more money this year, and I'm going to save more money this year, and I'm going to get out of debt. I mean, most of them are about wealth. 90% of our New Year's resolutions are health and wealth related. 
90% of our prayer requests are 99% probably health and wealth related. I'll sh- I can show you the cards that we get on Sunday. Almost all of them are about health. Because, you know, that's, that's what's important to us. You know, it's, it's wealth, that's what's important to us. And what he does in this chapter, this is the part that when I was running and I was listening to it and I was like, oh, wait, what, whoa, what did he just say? He basically tries to break down, does wealth really make us happy and does health really make us happy? And his conclusion is this, and it's not kind of what you'd expect. The conclusion is that money does indeed bring happiness. Because we've all grown up, preachers telling us, now, money don't make you happy and all that. And we, when they say that, we're like, I don't really believe that. You know, and he says, no, it does. Money makes you, the more money you have, the happier you are. So it does make you happy, but only up to a point. And beyond that point, it has very little significance. The wealthier you are, the less likely it is to make you happy. This is the way he breaks it down. And, and this is kind of leading us all into, I'll, I'll, I'll get to Ecclesiastes in just a minute, but here's the way it breaks down. Let's say you make um, $10,000 a year cleaning houses, and you win the lottery, and you win $500,000. It will make you happier. I mean, that, if you win $500,000, you make it 10 a year, that, you're going to be happier for a period of time because you're not living paycheck to paycheck anymore. You can feed the kids. You, you, know, you buy a nicer car, maybe buy a nicer house. But eventually those things kind of regulate back to a new level. So what it was required to make you happy at this level is eventually another level is required to make you happy. So if you make, let's say, $250,000 a year and you win the lottery for $500,000 or your boss decides to double your pay, that does make you happier for a time, but it's much briefer than the time somebody makes $10,000 a year. Because you were saying, well, I'm making 250 a year. Now, if I had 500, boy, I'd really be happy. But after you make 500, maybe you'll drive a little nicer car. Maybe you drink a little more expensive wine. But eventually, the new norm becomes the 500,000. You said, boy, if I had 750, boy, I'd really be happy then. If I, you see, how, I mean, like that, like money has a temporary effect on our happiness, but it doesn't last. People who are significantly wealthier than other people are no more or less happy than them. It, it doesn't really have a long-term effect on it. Neither does health. Because you would say, well, well hell, if, you get, if you receive a bad diagnosis, that's going to make you less happy. And he says, not necessarily. It does in the short term. But there's people who've been chron- uh, diagnosed with chronic illness or lifelong illness that are no more or less happy than people who are relatively healthy. There's people, you know, diagnosed with, you know, diseases like diabetes that say, well, that doesn't have a drastic effect on them on my happiness, even though I have to manage this the rest of my life. Or people who have been in automobile accidents that maybe become disabled in some way. And he says it has a temporary effect. Yeah, for a little while, you're not happy. But eventually that kind of regulates itself. Here's the analogy, okay? And just hang with me one second here. Lucy and Luke are middle-class twins who agree to take part in a subjective well-being study. On the way back to the psychology laboratory from... Lucy's car is hit by a bus, leaving Lucy with a number of broken bones and a permanently lame leg. Just as the rescue crew is cutting her out of the wreckage, the phone rings, and Luke shows that, says that he's won the lottery for $10 million. Two years later, she'll be limping, and he'll be a lot richer. But when the psychologist comes around for a follow-up study, they're both likely to give the same answers they did the morning of that fateful day. Two years. And all he's saying is that happiness doesn't last when it's rooted in things like the pursuit of wealth 
or health or human progress or advancement or success or work or pleasure. None of those things lead to lasting happiness. Now, when you hear that list, if you're sitting there thinking, you know, that doesn't sound like a very original idea there. This is a bestseller in 2014. But it sounds like somebody else said that. Yeah, somebody else did that. Another Hebrew beat Harari to the punch by 3,000 years. It was the writer of Ecclesiastes. He's simply known in the book as the teacher. And we don't know who he was. Most people assume he's King Solomon. But what we do know is that the teacher in Ecclesiastes had everything he wanted. He had wealth. He had health. He had success. He, you know, he could pursue. He basically says in the letter or book, I could pursue anything my heart desired. I could have anything my heart desired. And he starts the book with his conclusion. And his conclusion at the beginning of the book is Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 2. He says this. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So his conclusion, when he tries to pursue purpose in life, or he tries to pursue um, meaning in life, or he tries to pursue happiness in life, he comes to the conclusion of, it's all meaningless. Everything that I could pursue is meaningless. Pleasures are meaningless. I'm just giving you a quick summary of the book. Pleasures are meaningless. Wisdom is meaningless. Work is meaningless. Time is meaningless. Advancement is meaningless. Riches are meaningless. I mean, just, that's just the whole book. He just kind of goes in and just listen to what he says about wealth. All right, and see how this lines up with what Harari says. Verse 10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are their owners except to feast their eyes on them? So as, as our wealth has increased as a society, so has our consumption. The sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them more sleep. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and everyone comes, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their work that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they work for the wind? I mean, it's just, he, he hits it. It's a really kind of a depressing book in some sense. But it's also one of my favorite books because it's just this ultra-realistic view of life. Like, hey, that's, at the end of the day, that's not what it's all about. Yeah, that wealth means something for a little while, but not long-term. And he's down on everything in this book except for two things. There's two things in the book that the writer of Ecclesiastes speaks about in a positive sense. And it's only a few verses. One of them is in chapter 4, verse 9. After complaining about how bad it is for a person to be alone, he says this, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. So he, so he yields on one point. Companionship has value. 
whether we're talking about our family or our friends or our spouses, whoever that, but companionship has some value, has some meaning to it, has some purpose to it. And then his conclusion at the very end of the book is this. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. That's how he concludes the book. So, so faith has value. So the writer of Ecclesiastes kind of follows this like, wealth is meaningless, health is meaningless, all of that stuff is meaningless, but there's two things of value. One is companionship or relationship, our family, whether we're talking about our biological family or we're talking about the family we choose, our friends, our spouses, and then the other is our faith, our God. At the end of the day, that's th- those are the two things that matter. You could talk to people that are, that are are in hospice and there's a guy uh, who is it bob fisher did this he was the president of belmont university they interviewed like hundreds of people that were in hospice and asked them what matters and none of them talked about the size of their bank account and none of them talked about even their health what they talked about was their faith and their family at the end that was all that mattered now harari even yields on this point i got this in on the screen so i'll show you like he doesn't acknowledge faith But look at this right here. This is his conclusion in this chapter about happiness. Faith, family, and community seem to have more impact on our happiness than money or health. Look at this next line right here. People with strong families who live in tight-knit and supportive communities are significantly happier than people whose families are dysfunctional or who have never found or never sought a community to be a part of. Now, it's the, what's in parentheses there that kind of caught my attention was have never sought. Because we don't, we don't, families aren't perfect. And we can't control what families we're born into. And when he says there, you know, he's like, oh, people with strong families are significantly happier unless their family's dysfunctional. It's like, well, that, that just destroys it all right there. But he says, people who, who have never found or never sought a community to be a part of. The health and wealth gospel is bankrupt. The idea that greater health is going to make us happier or that greater wealth is going to make us happier is a bankrupt idea. The only thing that's ever going to make us happier or bring us fulfillment or meaning or purpose in our life is our faith and our family. So when we set our New Year's resolutions, what if we spent a little bit more time focused on those things than we did on ourselves. What if we spend a little bit more time focusing on how can I give more time to my God? How can I lift Jesus up higher? How can I make, as I think Scott talked about in the prayer, my platform, my life about him rather than me? And then how can I spend more time with my family? How can I invest more time into relationship? How can I spend more time in, in companionship with other people because those are the things that I need to pursue. Chasing wealth is not going to make me happier. Chasing health is not going to make me happier. What's going to make me happier is chasing a relationship with my God and chasing a relationship with other people. And so that's kind of where we're going in this series. Where we're going in the series is, the next three weeks, is like, how do you do that? What does that look like? When you go to God's Word and you say, how do I pursue relationships that really matter how do i pursue a greater relationship with god how do i pursue a greater relationship with the people that i love and what does god's word instruct me to do there so that's kind of where we're, we're heading when we talk about the pursuit of happiness that's what we're talking about so 
So let me pray for us. And uh, Tim's got a, an announcement or two. We've got to take our offering. Tim's got an announcement or two. <clears throat> we'll wrap up. And Spring Hill is going to get, get ready to do their offering as well. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I want to... Uh, I'm thankful for the ancient wisdom of your word. When I think about, uh, we, we read a writer like uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes, and he's writing about a time period centuries removed from our time period, yet his words still carry weight and relevance and meaning and, and truth. <clears throat> and we read his words, we discover truth. And so I'm thankful for your word and what it instructs us. <clears throat> I'm thankful for uh, the truths that it reveals to us. And God, this truth today is a hard one for us because we know, <coughs> on one level, we know that family and community and faith, that's all that really matters. But everything in our society keeps pushing us for more and keeps pushing us to, to, to have more wealth or more possessions. or more. It's just difficult. It's a battle that we're, we face. We know at the end of the day it's family that matters way more. And that it's faith that matters way more. And so help us to make that a priority in the present. Don't, don't, don't help us to not let it be a diagnosis that leads us to that conclusion or a, or a, a wreck that leads us to that conclusion or, you know, that, that, that life doesn't have to fall apart for us to wake up and realize that it's way more important to be focused on these things. And so I pray you help us to do that in this new year, in this new decade. Help us to focus on the things in our lives that really matter, our faith and our family. Um, it's in the name of your son, Jesus, I pray these things. Amen.